0: Hi all, I'm Lisa and I help out on the welcome team. Um, I'm going to read tonight's scripture first Peter 2 1 through 5 Therefore rid yourselves of all malice all deceit hypocrisy envy and all slander Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation If you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Lisa. If you can open your Bibles to that passage, First uh, First Peter chapter 2. I wonder if you've ever heard this line before. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. You heard that before? Any leaders, any entrepreneurs in the room? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. This is a line by Peter Drucker, and he's famous for this line, and I wish I believed this line seven years ago when we started Passion Creek Church. See, I thought I knew culture. I thought I knew what kind of culture we wanted to create. I was able to state it, but I didn't necessarily do the best job instilling it. If I have one regret, In my leadership journey so far, it's, I didn't take it seriously enough when pastors told me, make sure you guard your culture, because that is what's going to give you life, because you may have all the great strategies in the world, which I think we have an incredible strategy here at Passion Creek Church, but if we don't have the right culture, a gospel culture, none of it matters. Now, what is culture? Culture is the vibe of your tribe right? It's the intangibles. It's there's something here about this group, and you call that culture. Culture isn't even necessarily what happens when the leader is present. It's mainly what happens when the leader is absent. In many ways, that's why some of you are joining Basics this afternoon, because there was something you couldn't really put up, you couldn't really exactly detail why, but there was something about this family that you wanted to be a part of. On the other side, culture is a reason why some people don't come back. There was something about the culture that didn't necessarily grab their attention. In older churches, culture is this phrase. This is just the way we do things around here. Sometimes that's really healthy. Other times it's one of the worst things ever. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Strategy is the thing that empowers you to read your Bible. Culture is the thing that excuses you from actually doing the Bible. You can read your Bible all day, but if you don't have the culture of doing it, it doesn't quite matter, does it? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. And so if I were to go back to my 23-year-old self and say, Trey, listen up, buddy, because I was 23 when we planted this, grace of God, right? I, I would say, Trey, look, quit waiting for a better culture, start creating one. Quit waiting for it. Leaders create culture. They don't wait for the culture to come. And in many ways, this is what Peter is doing here. He's setting the culture, not just for the churches who were spread out in exile. He was setting a culture for our church today. Write this down. This is going to be a little bit of a leadership lesson, especially here at the beginning of this message. Leadership takes ownership of the fellowship. This is what leaders do. And you're going to see Peter doing this, and we want to do this as well as a church and our church leadership. How do we take ownership of the fellowship? Meaning? There should never a healthy leader never says our people just don't do that this that or the other. No, instead you say no, I haven't led my people to do this that or the other. So one of the most terrifying things somebody told me when I started this church. They said your church in 5 years will be a reflection of your leadership. Terrifying, right? Your family. Husbands, I feel specifically led to talk to the room men who you lead is a reflection of you, especially five to 10 years down the road. And so if I was honest, our church, I love where we're at, but there's also a lot of places where I want us to go. And, uh, and I think part of it is taking ownership of the fellowship and speaking into things. When I was... Um, I, I right before planting this church, and I'm done talking about planting, but one more story. Right before planting this church, I got to speak at this church out in North Phoenix. And they were possibly going to support our church, and it really depended on how good the sermon was. They never supported our church, but it's fine. So I remember, though, he was sharing, and I was, I was standing right next to him, and he was giving me some great wisdom about planting a church right before I was doing it. And I'll never forget his voice, like singing, was terrible. Like it was just horrendous. And yet, he was the loudest person in the whole room singing. And I thought, bro, you need to sit in the back. Like, you're right next to the microphones. This is kind of ruining the experience. I mean, it would just be like the manliest way to sing. It'd be like uh, like dwarves from Lord of the Rings, you know, like just singing. I don't know. I watched Lord of the Rings this week. I'm feeling inspired. But it was just terrible, right? But you know what I learned seven years later? Just this week, I thought, oh, I know why he did that. Because he wanted the men to sing in the church. And he took ownership of the fellowship, and he thought, if there's a single person in this room who's not singing because they don't sound good, <laughs> I'm leading the way. And if I can sing, if, if pastor can sing that loud and that obnoxious, everyone in the room can. That's leadership. That's leadership 101. You want an honor culture in your family, in your house, in your church. Take the time, leader, to be the one to honor somebody every single day of the week. You want a culture of worship, you better be the one singing in front of everybody else. You want to have more peace at your home, lead the way, husband. Lead the way, father. Lead the way, whoever, in setting a sabbatical once a week. Leaders don't wait for culture, they create the culture. Adrian Rogers, one of my favorite pastors, he has this line, I thought it was so good. He says, if you need encouragement, give it. If you need love, give it. Whatever you need, give it away. And that's leadership. I want us to look at the leadership of Peter, and I hope it instills leadership within us here at Passion Creek Church. The title of my message today is Don't Be a Culture Vulture. Don't be a culture vulture. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you, we invite you in this room. God, we love that you are a God who loves to be invited. And so we invite you. Have your way. Use this passage in 1 Peter 2 to transform us into your image. God, I pray that it would grow our church today the way that we not only hear the word, but we also do it on our way out. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Leadership takes ownership of the fellowship. So here we have in 1 Peter 2, Peter is taking ownership of the fellowship at a very massive level level. Remember Peter, he's writing to Gentiles. A shout out to Caleb who spoke in the last uh, two Sundays. He uh, described how Peter's actually writing to the Gentile people. Here's what we have to remember in just context. The Gentiles had a terrible culture. They had no biblical culture at all. The Jews at least had the Old Testament and they're able to kind of tweak it and understand the new covenant, but the Gentiles had nothing. And so Peter's trying to instill a brand new culture in a place where they've never had any concept of God like we have here in the Bible. And I think this can be an encouragement to you. I I love here at our church, there are several of you that I know in the room right now who you are the first person to be a Christian in your family. So this whole Christian culture thing, brand new to you. What a legacy you're able to create. What a, you have the opportunity to start a new culture, and we want to help you with that. So for Peter here, he's going to set the culture. But in order to first set the culture, he has to first address the vultures. Somebody told me the other day I haven't rhymed in a while. I'm back. All right. Verse one, culture vulture. Verse one, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. These are characteristics of a culture vulture. You want a bad culture, you allow and encourage and spread people who have malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and spread all sorts of slander. Let me explain what each of those words are. They're not really typically something we use in our everyday conversation, so let me explain them real quick. Malice simply means a desire to hurt or to harm someone. This can be with your mouth, typically, but also with your body. You just, you have this desire. You have malice. You, You are an angry person. You don't like when other people are happy. You also have deceit, Deceit happens in so many different ways. Typically, though, in my experience, the people who are deceitful are the ones who are the most insecure. And so they make up lies in order to make themselves look like they are better than they really are. I've actually learned when I hear people who are very over, uh, who are deceitful, who are very exaggerative, I actually have learned to pray for them because they are looking for love in all the wrong places. But deceit. This need of saying, I'm not enough, so I need to change the story so that you like me more. Hypocrisy. This is one we all know, and I think most of us label, a lot of us think the church is full of hypocrites. Um, hypocrites means to, be, to pretend to be somebody you're not. I just want to invite you here at this church. You can be wherever you're at. We have a plan for you. right? We have an agenda for your life, for you to look just like Jesus. But you can be where you're at right here in this moment. In fact, you can never grow until you're honest about where you're at today. Then you have envy. Envy is to resent someone for their gifts. What's interesting about envy, and I actually learned this uh, from Jordan Van Camp at the Cultivate Women's Conference, is envy not just means I like that person's car. Envy says, okay, Sean, I want your Corvette. I don't think you should have that red Corvette. I think it should be my Corvette. So not only should I get your red Corvette, but you should no longer have one. That's envy. He does have a red Corvette. Uh, Make sure you can check it out after service. Now, and then also you have, don't envy it though. Don't envy it, not today. Oh, not today. All right, come next week. Now, and then you have slander. Slander is backbiting. It's gossip, right? It's talking bad behind somebody's back. Now, here's what I want us to see. Peter's not being random here. Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is not going, what are some random things I need to make sure they don't do? Peter is a pastor, and he is seeing within his congregation a culture of vultures. He's saying, hold on. I'm seeing within the life of our church way too much malice. There are people who are carrying the banner of Jesus, and they're hypocrites? That doesn't make any sense. So he says, rid yourself. It's a violent language. He said, you've got to stop this. This should be very convicting to the people he's talking to. Peter's saying, you've got to be on alert. Leaders, they, are, they take ownership of the fellowship, and he's saying, that's not going to fly here anymore. Peter's constantly saying that, be alert and of sober mind. It's a constant phrase you have here in 1 Peter. He's saying that the devil, he likes to devour people like a roaring lion, but also the devil likes to deceive people like a slithering serpent. And so many ways. You know how the church divides? It's not because of the people out there. It's because of backbiting in here. And Peter's saying, we're not having that. We're having a discussion. You're going to fix that. This is what leaders do. Write this down. Leaders project the culture and protect the culture. Here's what I wish I knew. I did. I feel like I did a decent job projecting what I wanted our culture to look like. You're going to hear our cultural values at the very end of this message, so stay tuned. But I feel like I did a decent job. Uh, you, there is this phrase, whatever is celebrated is it. Anybody heard that before? Right? So if you want to see something, you see somebody do that and you say, okay, that was good. Hey, everybody, look what that guy just did. You know how he shows up early every single week. That's incredible. And you tell people, you honor them and say, we're going to celebrate that story. And people subconsciously go, okay, I'm going to start doing that as well. Like, that's rewarded around here. I want, to be, I want to be rewarded around here. I'm going to have those similar behaviors. But here's what I didn't understand, and this is so hard about leadership, and I think this applies as pastors, but as parents, as business owners, whatever you want. Look, whatever celebrated is replicated. Yes and amen, but just as equal. Whatever is tolerated is replicated. You allow malice in the house? that's going to spread like gangrene, the scriptures say. You allow gossip, you allow people to talk bad about others, and you entertain those conversations, you are setting forth a culture. Peter saying, we represent, we're about to see, we represent the presence of God. There is no room, and so what you have to do is to protect it. The hardest job of a leader is to protect the culture. It means you have tough conversations it means you connect, but then you correct. You say, okay, I love you, but we're not going to allow that here. There's grace, but we're not allowing that here. Let's work through that. Let me, uh, here's some uh, questions to ask yourself if maybe you're struggling with some of these sins that he listed. Ask yourself this, maybe, is there anybody I don't wish God's best for? I know I have an answer for that, and I have to repent. I've been working with God on that this week. Am I acting one way in front of someone and then another behind their back? Am I envious of other people's success or their gifts or their relationships? Do I find myself criticizing other people? Right? That answer leads more questions, which we're going to look at here. uh, Peter is warning us about tolerating these types of sins in our fellowship, and hear me, sins in your own life. So he wants us to protect the culture. Now let's look at verse 2. Verse 2, he now sets a beautiful picture of what this culture looks like. He says, Now, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. I don't believe Peter's here making a statement about maturity. He's actually talking about the thirst level. So like a baby just needs milk, or like the psalmist says, like the deer pants for water, you and I are to crave to desire the Word of God. He's saying this is the healthy culture we need. Step one is to love this book. Amen. To be put your face in it, to let it talk to you, to let it confront you, to comfort you, to command you. We are doers of the word. We believe everything written in this book as long as it's interpreted in its right context. Amen. Amen. Context is everything. You can use this book to say anything you want, but context has a word for you. Okay, so now verse 3, it says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's referencing here Psalm 34, one of my favorite chapters. So when you taste the goodness of God, this book gets much more sweeter. But let's look at verse 4. As you come to him, who is him? Jesus. That's like always the good answer when I ask who's whatever. It's Jesus. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. I love this. I think he's writing to a group of rejected people. And so Peter's saying, you know how you feel rejected? Our king was rejected too. It's okay because God loves you. God just as how God loves Jesus, his son. Verse five, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, what does this mean? This imagery here is groundbreaking. I think it's really normal for us because this is 2000 years later. We have to understand how radical this was. Christianity was the first religion to not need a temple, to not have like a altar, to where you don't even have to have a priest to pray to God. This was groundbreaking. So you have to understand, as they're reading this, this blows their mind. Oh, I can encounter God here and now, where I'm at? Yes. Because of the gospel, God's presence is with you and with me, because he dwells inside of us, amen, when we believe in Jesus and our Lord and Savior. Now, what also he's communicating here, that's not as hard for us to understand. We get that, that the church, you know, is a, is a group. But what, what Peter is saying here is he is p- painting a picture of what kind of group we are. Write this down. Every culture has a group identity. So Peter's here trying to explain to us what is the church like? What is our culture? What is our identity? Science, uh, I've been into brain science lately, which goes over my head. Get it? Brain, anyways. Okay, so, uh, but brain science tells us that from birth to childhood, you are spending every moment learning your own individual identity. It's so fun as a, a father of a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a four-year-old. It's totally what they're doing, right? They're trying to learn themselves. Like anytime I compliment one of them, they're like, okay, what does this mean for me? Like I've totally declared Trinity, my youngest, she's the class clown. Like she's gonna be the prankster all the time. Well, then Faith goes, well, then what am I? If she's the class clown, what am I? I'm like, you're the rule follower. Now you better keep to it, right? So we have all, they're trying to learn their identity. But here's what happens at age 12. And this is why parenting teenagers is so hard, right? I wouldn't know, but I was a youth pastor once. At age 12, You now try to learn your group identity. So we actually have it wrong when we tell teenagers, you're just trying to learn your identity. No, they've actually kind of figured that out in 1 to 12. The problem is now they're trying to join groups, and those groups say, we don't like you for who you are, now you need to change. And they want to be in a group so bad, they're willing to change. Does that make sense? Group identity, to be a human, is to run after a group identity from 12 on. Your whole life, you're constantly trying to figure out who your group is, because group identity is essential to human flourishing. Brain science proves this. It helps you determine what's right from wrong. So it's not just a book, even the Bible, right? This is our right and wrong, but most of us, we don't believe it until we have a group around us that says, yes, that's right and that's wrong. This is why it's really important for teenagers to be with the right people, right? It also gives you a sense of belonging. It knows that you have a community. Serving your group gives you an enormous sense of purpose, right? So during Jesus' time here on earth, he came forth and gave us, the church, a group identity. Let me give you a few examples of what this identity looks like. Peter's, again, trying to show this imagery of saying we're like a living temple. When they see us, they see the presence of God, and that's how we live. Uh, here's a few things that are on your notes. Christ created a people who, first of all, take God's command seriously. This is uh, three of these points I'm having from the Sermon on the Mount. I'm currently trying to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, and it's just so rich because you just don't realize how brilliant Jesus is until he says phrases over and over again. And one of the things he says towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is, man, the, the one who practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know what he says, though? The one who sets aside the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. James says, we're not just hearers of the word, but doers only. A group identity we have at this church based on the Sermon on the Mount is we take the Bible seriously. We take his command seriously. Another thing Christ said when he was on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, we as a people, we reconcile as quickly as possible. You want to be part of this group? You better reconcile. We don't put up with, well, I don't like that guy over there because he said, no, we're going to deal with it. All right, call him up. Let's meet because we reconcile. Jesus said, man, you have your gift and you're there. Remember, a brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there at the altar. Go quickly reconcile with them. Then come back, find that gift and offer it to the Lord. We are a people who reconcile. The next one, Jesus says, we are careful to obey God in our sexuality, even with our glances and our thoughts. I'm not saying this is easy, but this is who we are, and we've signed up for this because Jesus is just that good, and he gives us the power to do it. One more thing. Identity only works in community. Write that down. Identity only works in community. You don't really have an identity outside of a community, and so I want us to notice this imagery here of stone upon stone. He's saying we are a a living stone built on top of each other for the glory of God. Number one, like stones, you and I cannot leave. This is the imagery Peter wants us to see. We're stones, and we're stuck there, baby. (laughs) Welcome to church. You're stuck with us. That's what Peter's saying. We're stuck. What does that mean? Now, there are obviously reasons you should leave a church. Abuse. I think you need to run the other way. Um, Moving locations. I think it's kind of obvious. You you should probably join wherever. You know, If they're in California, you're in Arizona, that's not going to work out long term. But I think... Most of us leave church way too soon. I've had the gift of seeing some people in our church have some issues with other people in our church. I'm not allowed to share those stories because of the law, right? But it's beautiful because they're all, I know some, right now, some of y'all are in the room and you once had something against each other. But you know what I saw when you got over it, when you reconciled? Not only was it beautiful to see people reconciled, but both parties grew. They became more loving. They were more patient, a whole lot more empathetic. A beautiful thing. I've actually come to believe God wants conflict in the church because he wants us to grow. And so in order to grow, we have to endure and go through conflict. Let not This is why we're talking about basics today. We're talking about covenanting together. To grow, we have to be stuck together and be committed to each other, like a marriage where even though we would just, the culture, the world's culture says just run away, do what's best for you, do what's easy, True growth happens when we recognize we are stuck together. Number two, I have to be quick. Like stones, saints are stacked above and below us. This is what's beautiful. I preached on this a few weeks ago about being a multi-generational church. Um, Those who are above us are actually those who are newer in the faith. We off, In the world, we think those who are above have higher status, but in the kingdom of God, everything is reversed. Those who are above us means we are putting them on our shoulders, and we're holding people. I hope and pray there are people in this room you pray for, and you teach, and you love, and you gently show them the power of the scriptures because you've lived more life than they have, and it's your duty to hold them up. Also, there are some saints in the room that are below you, meaning they're more mature than you. So when you come into this room, when you are joining a together group, you listen to their advice and you take heed to the words they have to say because they are seasoned saints and you need to learn from their wisdom. I was reading First Kings this week. Solomon's son had so many dumb decisions. You know why? He says that he took the elder's advice and ignored it. And he asked his fellows, his group, what do you think we should do? We are saints stacked above and below, and we're here for each other. Friends, the church is being built, not brick upon brick, but Christian upon Christian. It's a beautiful thing. But Peter goes on. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, for it stands in Scripture. He's about to quote Isaiah and Psalms and Isaiah again. He says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. There is so much here in this passage, but let me just summarize this for you quickly. The whole Bible points to one name, and his name is Jesus, amen? Without Jesus, you and I are nothing. Without Jesus, your life will fall apart. Without Jesus, we actually believe your life will end in destruction and death and punishment. But Peter, he's saying, here's the good news. If you take Christ as your cornerstone, it leads to life and life in abundance. But if you don't take Christ as cornerstone, there will be consequences. Here's the options Peter's giving us and maybe giving you today. Cornerstone or gravestone. Here's our options. What does cornerstone mean? Cornerstone is the foundation of a strong house. Peter's using this imagery to say, okay, this cornerstone sets the foundation of everything else. So if your cornerstone is incorrect, the rest of the house will be wobbly. The rest of the house just will not work. So the question is, what is your foundation? What is your ultimate hope? Who do you look to for meaning and purpose and reason to live? He's saying, if it's not Christ, your life will be crushed. And this means several things. I think for those who have never believed in Jesus, this is saying, look, your life is a gravestone. Everything you're doing is just gonna lead to death. It's just gonna lead to disappointment, it's gonna lead to suffering. Now, here's the thing, if you're a Christian, you will still have death, you'll still have disappointment, you'll still have suffering, but there will be a cornerstone to hold you up. And there will be a hope that is beyond the grave. But without Christ, you're crushed. Peter doesn't want that for you, and neither do I. Let me give you some examples. What does it look like for a life that's built on the cornerstone of Christ? What does it look like for a life built on the gravestone of something else? Write this down. Um, In Christ, here's the cornerstone, we take God's command seriously. When you make that the cornerstone of your life, it does lead to a life filled with abundance and joy. It's not always perfect, but man, it's so good. But the gravestone version of that is when you take the culture vultures, believe what they have to say, and they say, no, God's commands are just God's suggestions. So you pick and choose what to follow, and consequently you have a faith that's fake and hollow. It won't hold up. What about more? As a cornerstone in Christ, we reconcile as quickly as possible. The gravestone version of that, the culture vulture version, the, what the world says, no, I don't need reconciliation, I need revenge. The scriptures are pretty clear. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Right? But the world will say, that's fine, he hurts you. Don't misinterpret me. If you're being abused by someone, you need to get out, and we, would, we, we believe calling authorities and all of that. But some of us, you don't need revenge, you just need Reconciliation. But the gospel is the the foundation by which we can do that. Last one, cornerstone. In Christ, we're careful to obey God in our sexuality. This is a cornerstone that we have to teach all of us. I'm so tired of people saying just the young people. No, it's all of us have to take this invitation. And this invitation lasts through our lifetime. The gravestone version of that that we're hearing every day. And we have so much mercy and grace for And we want to walk through with you because you've been hearing this your whole life. I deserve to explore and indulge my sexuality. The reality is that sounds amazing. but Peter's saying that's not putting your life on Christ, the cornerstone. It actually leads to despair and destruction and division and your soul is disintegrated. We need to put on Christ. We need to make him the cornerstone. So what is our identity? What does it look like? Verse 9 and 10, he answers that. And I think it's so good. And we'll be done. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. He's clearly not Baptist because was a four-point sermon right there, not three, but it's fine. I forgive him. A people for his own possession. Only two of you got that. And I'm actually very grateful for that. Uh, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy if you make Christ the cornerstone. These two phrases here are actually, these four phrases, excuse me, are pretty fascinating. I want to focus on that as we land this plane. Write this down. A gospel culture is overflowing with humility and confidence. What do I mean by that? Look at the first two phrases, a chosen race and a royal priesthood. Chosen race, this is a humble term. This is full of humility. Chosen means, here's the thing you're not that brilliant. It's not that you chose God. It's in fact that God chose you. That's amazing. You know why that's so good? Because it had nothing to do with how great you are. It has everything to do with how great he is. He chose you, and so therefore he can't lose you. Right? That's humbling. He didn't choose me because of my good looks, Jordan, right? That's not why he chose me. He just chose me. And that, man, that that's that's that gives you a sense of humility. But not only that, he says we are a royal priesthood. Here's the thing about being a priest: it's not being a king. What does a priest do? Read the Old Testament. The priest doesn't even own land. They just serve. They're not there to be served, they're there to serve. He's saying, You're royal, but you still gotta serve. That's humbling. This is who we are, we're a living temple. And we serve the least of these because we are the least of these. That that ought to give you humility. That ought to give you no reason to look down on any other people group, to make fun of somebody else. No, no, no. We are a people say, look, God chose me. There's nothing I did. And maybe God chose you. Let me show you about Jesus the cornerstone. But also gives us confidence. Some of us got to get our step back. Look, confidence is this next thing. He says, but you are also, you're not just a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Holy means we're set apart. We are exclusive to God. We are a nation of people. And there's nobody like us. And we're going to last for eternity. That ought to give you some confidence. Not only that we are a people for his own possession other translations say god treasures us man if god can be for me who can be against me to quote shobaraka from a song i walk with the confidence of 10 men only because my confidence is in him we walk with confidence So I want to ask you, I'm thinking through as a a church, a group identity, but also in your own family, in your own life, are you taking the invitation to walk in humility? Do you need some humbling? Or are you walking in confidence? Maybe you need greater vision for your life. Here's an easy litmus test. Here's how you can know. How well does verse one describe your life? How well does malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander describe your life right now? The answer to that is an invitation to look to God more because you are looking to someone else that only Christ can give. I know for me, mine is slander, and that's usually not me. I have no interest in slandering people. I think it does nothing for the gospel, but I was talking to a mentor on the phone this uh, a couple weeks ago, and I, we were talking about basketball. And I, there's a group of friends that we know. And for some reason, I talk bad about all of those guys. Like, in other words, like, we got them. You know, like, you know, they're not going to win. But I, I kind of I went a, a step too far. And so this friend, he was one of the first people to ever call me out of my sin. It was in college. And, I mean, we met. And I was having the greatest time. And he called me out. And for the next week, you can ask Jordan. And I like, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was so embarrassed. It was so transformative for my life. It was the first time I had a mentor call me out because he was protecting the culture but anyways so I said something bad about this group and I know him and I said hey 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 hey, before you even say anything let me do this first what I said was wrong I should not have said this about that group over there and I'm just embarrassed that I did that yada yada and then he doesn't answer back I mean he is completely silent and I'm thinking oh no we're not friends anymore it was one sin too far you know he finally goes, hey man, I totally missed like the last five minutes of what you said. What's going on? So I was like, oh, don't worry about it. Let's just move on. You know, I didn't have to even go eat in here nothing. But that invitation for me was, okay, why did I, it was such a throwaway line, but why did I slander them? Okay, I'm not walking in humility. If I'm not walking in humility, I, there's something that I need to give to Christ. I am not remembering who I am in Christ. I'm not walking in the grace and love that only Jesus can give. And there's an invitation. I want you to practice together this week. I want us to look at as a church group, what are the invitations here to stop being a culture vulture and to step into the love and grace of Jesus? We have two practices this week to go through with your groups. If you can't be a group this week, just do it on your own. Number one is practice humility. I'll be quick, but at our church, we have five values that shape the life of our church. The first two are never stop learning and never compare. That is a life of humility. We never stop learning. We aren't above anyone. I love it. Somebody in my group this week said, people ask, how come I go to that guy's church? He's younger than you. Well, he said, I don't know. I just do. Because we never stop learning. There's nobody above us, nobody below us. We're just learners. Amen? This is what we do at our church. And we never compare. Tim Keller has such a great line. He says, the way the normal human ego tries to fill its emptiness and deal with this discomfort is by comparing itself to other people all the time. To compare yourself is to live a life of pride. To live a life of pride means you have a life of emptiness. Friends, only Jesus can help you. Friends, I'm here to say the love of Jesus can give you what the admiration of people can never give you practice humility. Speak of others more than you speak of yourself. And that is evidence that the grace of Jesus has taken hold of your life. Here's the second thing to practice. You probably guessed it. Practice confidence. The other three values of our culture is we never give up. (laughs) We're stubborn. (laughs) We ain't giving up. We want a building. We still want a building. You know what I believe? We Here's the thing. Here's how God works. We hear the word of the Lord before we ever see the work of the Lord. So we're going to keep going. This is just how God works. We're too dumb to give up. We never give up, but also we never hold back. We have a God of abundance, which means we walk in confidence. When God gives us a gift, we also think this gift needs to be gifted to someone else as well. God's blessings don't stop with us, they spread through us. How come I can have that confidence? Because the same God who took care of me today is the same God who will take care of me tomorrow. Man, at Passion Creek Church, we're never alone. We walk into confidence. Here's what I know. I am confident that y'all got my back. I am confident that my group will take me as I am. And I'm confident even this Tuesday night, I can talk about a struggle and they're going to keep it. They're going to hold on to it. They're not going to use it against me. They're going to use it to love me. Because I have that confidence because we are a living temple being built into the image of God. This is an invitation to a group that maybe you've never been a part of. And what a great day today to stay after and join our basics and see what God has for you to join our family. Friends, I'm here to tell you, life is filled with culture vultures. But Christ can become your cornerstone. It doesn't have to be your story anymore. You can today, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, walk in humility, knowing it's nothing you did to deserve salvation and hope. It's everything what Jesus did on the cross. You can walk with confidence because the same God who died for you has a purpose for you walk in it.